founder of Alzheimer's Speaks. I'm so glad you're able to connect with us today because we are going to have a brilliant conversation about giving hope because, you know, hope, hope really matters. Kindness is important and, you know, we need to pull together as a society. And so our guest today, Marianne um, Bakakao, is, is just going to be a, a wonderful conversationalist and telling us all the different things that she's doing to make the world a better place. But before we go there, I always like to tell people a little bit about Alzheimer's Speaks because we're getting new listeners all around the world all the time. And bottom line, Alzheimer's Speaks was created because my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years. And it's all about raising everyone's voice and evening off the playing field. So if you are a person living with dementia, if you're a family member, a business, an author, a researcher, um, an artist, it doesn't make any difference. We want to hear from you. We want to hear what your thoughts are, what you feel is needed to, to make us all live a little bit better and shift from crisis to comfort in terms of living side by side with dementia. If you haven't um, already subscribed, please do so. You can just click on the button and you'll be able to Listen to the shows. These are all podcasts. So we've been doing this since 2011. There's a ton of them out there you can go back and listen to as well. And you will hear from, I think, pretty much everybody I've interviewed that they really understand what this journey is about and how it can affect you emotionally, both pulling you down and bringing you up. And while we are live on this show, you can also call in. And that number is 323 873-4602. Again, that's 323-870-4602. Or you can always join us uh, via the chat box as well. So feel free to to jot a note um, or a question in there. And if you are a business, we love to help uh, brands expand their footprint in the dementia arena. So reach out to me. We have lots of platforms we can help you with uh, so that you're not out there struggling trying to build content when I know your staff is a lot of times shorthanded and your budgets are tight. So let us step in and help. Now, before I formally introduce Mary Ann, I want to give a shout out to Artist Senior Living. Uh, I, I just love this company. I've been out on tour um, at a few of their communities and the response in terms of meeting people and their reception to changing perceptions and the way we interact, not only with a person with dementia, but their families and our staff to create safe and, and comfortable environments has really been a lot of fun. And so if you haven't checked Artist Senior Living Out, please do so. Um, they're all over. Um, primarily out on the East Coast for the most part, but um, scattered around. I was out in Illinois, too. Uh, please, please go check them out. And I will be in Alabama at the East Alabama Area on Aging. Um, they're doing a conference, Alabama Cares, on the 21st. So I will be there then. I'm also doing a training for staff on the, on the um, 22nd of November as well. And I would love to be able to meet up with you in Alabama. For many, I'm sure you are aware that this is Alzheimer's Disease Awareness Month. It's also National Family Caregiver Month. And so there's just so much information out there. But remember, we need to pass this information on to people all year long because this disease just doesn't pop up in a month and families are struggling. And so please Please be conscious of that as we step into 2020 to share the knowledge that you have. I'd also like you to check out Lisa Marie uh, Chiquero's, um 
second annual cruise. And you can go to alls, A-L-Z, cruise, tropics with an S.com for more information. I did a cruise back in 2017, but time-wise, I haven't been able to do it. And I highly recommend if you're going to go on a cruise to check Lisa out. I think she's just absolutely fabulous. And then many people want to be able to help with research. And there's a game you can actually play that analyzes real data. And that is called Stall Catchers. So you can just go to stallcatchers.com and sign up to play the game. Uh, some families do it. Schools are having, um, you know, they're making it a competitive base between classes and things. And people all around the world are doing this. So it's it's pretty neat platform to be able to help push our data forward. And last, I have to give a big shout out to Dave, um, who has created the Memory Cafe directory. Uh, he's just done a marvelous job. He's got about 800 of them now in the U.S. and, and it's just Pretty dang exciting, you know, when I think of when they first, when we first started them, um, you know, in uh, the early, what was it, I want to say it was 2011, uh, when when they first landed here in the U.S. and kind of were gifted to us from the U.K. So, um, great place for people uh, to be able to gather those with dementia and their care partners, and I'm sure we'll talk with Marianne a little bit more on that because she's very active. So let me formally introduce Mary Ann um, Mekakao. She is um, just so motivated to make a difference in the hurting lives. And she knows there's many people out there really struggling. And she, you know, she's written a series of two children's books um, that have actually been translated into Spanish as well. And she is just a really compassionate writer and filled with practical tools and loves community events that are going to help families on a nationwide and even abroad basis. So I can't wait to learn from Marianne and all she has to offer. So welcome, Marianne. How are you doing today? Thank you, Laurie. I'm fine. And hello to all your listeners as well. Well, good. Well, I am, like I said, I am thrilled to to have you with us today. You've written this book, When Your Grandma Forgets, and you've done so many different things. But before I kind of go down my path of questioning, I always like to ask my guests if they have been personally touched uh, by any form of dementia in their own family or circle of friends. Yes, uh, my mother uh went through the disease of Alzheimer's for approximately 14 years. And I was blessed by having the opportunity in her last two and a half years to become the upfront and close caregiver with my dad and my husband. Uh, My parents are originally uh, from New York. I'm originally from New York. They had stayed there throughout their lives. And then two and a half years before she passed, they came to Florida because it was always a dream of hers to live here near the beach uh, Dad didn't have quite the same dreams, so he came with heel marks from New York to Florida, uh, but <laughs> did it for her. And uh, we entered that that season of her final chapter here in Florida. And I, I say blessed because even in that that chapter that is so very difficult of watching a loved one really lose what I call every capacity of personhood that this disease takes she still left me with some timeless and incredible gifts, even in that point where she lost her voice. And uh, I hope to share some of those experiences today, along with some other tools for families. Well, I think that's wonderful. And I can relate to the gift. I know when I go out and speak and I say, you know, my mom's disease was the biggest gift I'll ever receive in my life. And people kind of give me this twisted up face. And I'm like, it's such an opportunity to get to know somebody and care and love for them on on a much more intimate basis. And it really, truly is a privilege. And and like you said, the lessons and the tips that you learn are, you know, can be applied to all of life. And so, you know, I, I would love to see more people step comfortably into that role, looking for those things instead of feeling, you know, um, overwhelmed and burdened. And um, that's one of the reasons I think I'm doing the work I'm doing and you're doing the work you're doing is to try to help people find that, that peace and, and ease that, that segue for them. Why don't you tell us first about the road to publishing, um, 
your your children's books. Um, and I know you've written a couple of them. And again, the one in particular that has to do with dementia is when your grandma forgets. But what made you step into into the writing world to begin with? Yeah, well, there are actually six children's books that are out. And um, the, it really began as a, a career change choice. I had been working in the field of psychometry, which is psychological testing and measurements for a number of years. And uh, I have a friend who always had said to me over 25 years, you really need to stop writing for other people and sit down and write a book because you're really good at this. And I finally left that field to sit down and write a resource guide for families in crisis. And two weeks into my research for that, she called me with a diagnosis of breast cancer. Mm. And her first... uh, her first thoughts to me were, I, I want to share it with my second graders, but I don't want to scare them. And mm-hmm. I want them to feel like they can be a part of my journey because when my mother died, when I was 16 of lung cancer, we didn't know until it was too late to know. And she said, mm-hmm. I, I want the children to be informed and be part of that, but I don't really know how to tell them. And mm-hmm. my uh, response was to find a perfect book for her. So I went online and went to brick and mortar mortar stores and traveled and looked and, and everything that I found was either talking around the disease or playing it down or just not explaining it in a way that I was grasping from a child's standpoint, let alone my own. And I just felt that it was the one that was missing was one that made it forthright yet gentle and also gave the grief process of voice because the grief process is inherent in each of these journeys of losing something that we have known. And uh, I just felt convicted to write it myself because I saw that it was missing. And I sat down to do that for her, put it on pink paper at the books at the uh, copy store and sent it off and then went up for her surgery a couple weeks later and sat down in her classroom to read it to her students because no one in her school wanted to take that, that risk. And so Mm -hmm. uh, my first, my first question to them was how many of you have known someone with cancer? And this was a second grade class and every hand went up. And I realized that this was huge. And I I made it through the presentation, shared the book with them (laughs) and every one of them had questions. They had their own questions at the end. They had their own comments and as she went out for her surgery, they employed every tool that I put in that book. She came mm-hmm. back to uh, overwhelming sense that they had grasped what was important in this, but they had also put it to good use. And that's where um, really my writing and speaking and traveling, exhibiting, all of that began. And then it just sort of kept spiraling from that to other ones that were needed and other voices that were coming to me and saying, please don't stop. What you've started really needs more. And that's really how the journey began. Well, it is. And we were talking offline about this on how so many families, we try to protect our kids, but in protecting them and not being honest with them, it really can do some damage and some harm because they don't understand the specifics of what's going on or why the family dynamics have changed or why, you know, the relationship with a friend or a teacher or neighbor, you know, has, has shifted. And the grief, like you said, it does need to be addressed. Um, People have to process that stuff. And it's, it's so much easier. um, I think if we're just honest, because, you know, we're all going to go through grief multiple times in our lives. And so what a, what a great tool to be able to get our kids at a young age. I mean, it's so needed, so, so needed. So thank you for stepping into that space and then, you know, expanding it as you, as you went there. When it comes to grief with kids versus adults, how do you think we're alike and different, Marianne? It's it's interesting because a lot of people don't realize that the the very same emotions are felt and experienced. They're just felt at a different level of perception. And while we may be able to identify what we're feeling and consider what we're going to do with it, 
children are experiencing that same emotion of, you know, the happy, scared, frustrated, sad, confused, whatever face you give, what point they are in the grief process, they're, they're experiencing it in their own way at the age of six or eight or 12 or 14. And just like adults, if we don't give it a voice and we don't talk about it and identify where each person is in that process, we can risk ripple effects that cause more problems, as you said, later down the line. You know, for children especially, uh, they can develop depression, anxiety disorders, um, a host of different things going on later when they revisit something that strikes grief because they haven't gained the tools the first time, and now we have a culmination of what's causing grief in the current time paired with the previous time, and now they're being sort of doubly hit. And Mm -hmm. uh, adults sometimes haven't received this equipment either, and so it makes it very tough for some adults to feel courageous enough to sit down and have the conversation because they think, I don't even know truly what I feel. How Mm -hmm. do I help them with what they feel? And my answer to that is just to sit down and ask that question. How are you feeling? What can I help you with? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's as simple as getting a hug. Um, yep. Sometimes it's it's allowing them to cry and not minimizing that crying is a tool. It's a necessary one. And uh, I remember one particular adult had bought um, my book called when, you, you, when Mom's Cancer Doesn't Go Away because his wife was dying of cancer. He had a uh, 10-year-old who was experiencing her mother's death, and he bought it for her, and he said, I was a little unprepared with how much I was going to cry reading the mm-hmm. story. You know, he didn't become a, a bubbling mess, but he, he was cheerful. And his daughter ended up thanking him and saying, Daddy, I'm glad to see that that it's okay to cry because you showed me that you can cry too, you know? And then she spent some time highlighting what she could do at the memorial service. I had tips for that even in there. And she employed all of them. He found her in her bedroom highlighting these tips so she could be part of her mother's funeral. And, um, you know, we, we tend to minimize the impact that children can have in these situations. And uh, they really are the voice of, the caregiver for tomorrow and it's important that we give them that voice yeah i i agree i know my daughter was well she was a young teenager when my dad died and she got up and spoke and there wasn't a dry eye in the house i get teary-eyed thinking Mm -hmm. about it but powerful powerful you know sharing relationships and it's important stuff to be able to help Mm -hmm. process it's just um here I go, but it's, it's yeah, it's, it's yeah, it is. It's, it's it's uh, you know, it's it's almost like you're giving a physical comfort blanket instead of a crisis blanket, to use your terms. Lori, yeah. you know, it, we can we can either give it a blanket and, and as a crisis, meaning we just want to cover it up and make it go away, you mm-hmm. know, or we can give it a blanket of a comfort that says, "I'm here to love you through your last breath, and I'm here to be part of the experience." Um, you know, and I'm not saying that we should bring children to the bedside of a dying person, but we need to give them the opportunity to say goodbye if it's at all possible. Um, mm-hmm. and, and to have them, even if it's not a, a connected verbal goodbye, just to have the opportunity to go in and be with that person. I, I remember going up to UAB, um, University of Alabama, Birmingham, and having a session with social workers there and them talking to me about uh, families just being afraid to let their little ones get in the bed of a loved one in palliative care because there are wires and tubes and, you know, what if something gets hooked or snagged and, you know, or just is is hurtful. And, um, you know, they encourage them to push those things aside as much as possible and let that little one go snuggle with mommy or snuggle with daddy and, you know, get that close because that, that sense of touch is, something that all of us when the journey's done it's what we miss the most we may yeah. remember their voice to a degree we we have now thank god with the technology we have clips that so we can even hear their voice after they're gone but the ability to have that that last volume of touch to mm-hmm. tuck inside someone's soul for the future is is really important it's a it's a timeless gift 
Well, and it's it's interesting when you're talking about that. I remember a, a gal who I didn't know called me, and she was kind of primary caregiver for her mother who had dementia. And then she ended up with cancer and had to step back. And then when she stepped back in, her mom was really in hospice, and she was just, you know, curled up kind of in the fetal position. And she said, I want to tell her how much I love her. I, I want her to know. And she's like, I don't know if she can even hear me. And I said, oh, she can she can hear you. You know, oh, yeah. and I said, well, I said, why don't you just crawl in bed with her and give her a hug? And she's like, my mom's not a touchy, huggy person. I said, it's okay. This is about you, too. If you need right. to do that. And she's, she, you know, and I hear this a lot with some of our elders who just aren't, you know, they didn't show affection. And yet I've heard from so many over the years when I've asked, you know, if there's one thing, what would you change? It was that, you know, that they would have, you know, stepped forward and shown more affection. She crawled in bed with her mom and she, her mom responded to her. And I remember I was at a conference speaking and I couldn't wait to get back to my emails because we were going back and forth. And she said it was just life changing for her you know, and, and her family as a whole, because they never, ever would have done that. Never. And um, she said it just, it was so healing for her. And she could tell by her mother's response, it was healing for her as well. And so I think all ages, you know, we need to, you know, we need to engage um, illness and, and even the dying process because we're still alive. You know, we're still here. Mm -hmm. And and I Mm -hmm. think sometimes people are so uncomfortable that they just walk away because it's too hard. But, you know, then you have those thoughts, I would imagine, afterwards of what if I would have or should I or could Mm -hmm. I have. And, you know, and by doing it, you know, you've you've done the best you can in the moment you have. And, again, I know not everybody – can do that either. I, I understand that, but yeah. I think. And I'm, I love what you said that she's, I, I love what you said that she said her family wasn't the type to, to be physically contact like that, physically, mm-hmm. emotionally contacting. And I, and I think that that's something to really uh, consider as families that we are changing throughout the course of life and whatever you experienced as a kid of who your parents were, isn't any more, of what they are now than you are what you were when you were 20, if you're 60, you know, Mm -hmm. we are, we are all evolving, changing, growing, hopefully for the better as we age. And I've seen families that didn't have that perhaps in their upbringing, but when they, they really gestured to offer it later, how it does change the dynamic. I, I think about how my mother wasn't, um, sometimes the most gentle person in my upbringing because she had a lot of things she was contending with. But then as she got further along in the disease, she just developed this sort of what I call a childhood innocence about her. And Mm -hmm. she was so grateful, just over the top grateful for everything. And she would look at me with these eyes of, you know, just almost the tear sense of gratitude. And I remember one day asking her, mom, how old am I? And she said, 13, <laughs> you know, and here I am, you know, in my fifties and she's telling me I'm 13. And, and that was really revealing because it made me realize if she sees me today or in this moment that I'm 13, well, then let's talk about what happened when I was 13 mm-hmm. and really yeah. be in that space with her of whatever time frame her mind has her in and as she went through the latter stages, she became more and more dependent on me, much like a child and on those others caregiving for her. And it brings a little bit of a um, a, a sense of humility when you look at it that way, instead of looking at it as she's supposed to be my mom, I'm the daughter. And Mm -hmm. this doesn't feel right because the roles are reversed. Instead, look at it from this framework of that she is literally reversing backwards in time. And so why wouldn't she want to depend on someone? This is what we do when we're younger. We depend on others to help us through. Very, very true. Very, very true. And it's just just such a, a powerful time to be able to be to be present and to recognize one another that, you know, I've, I've always been with people when they've passed 
You know, that's just always been one of my roles. And when my mom passed away um, from dementia, she actually came to me in dreams and said, you won't be here. I need you gone. I need to know you're going to continue this work. And I need everyone else to partake in the dying process. She was really big about people shouldn't be afraid about this. And I was, I, you know, I had two keynotes. I was in Arizona and my family, I think all thought I was having a nervous breakdown, except for my daughter, because she knew this was what grandma wanted. And it was, um, and I was totally connected. We did through video. I, you know, I was there for the last rites. I saw her last breath. I, you know, when my one brother got out of hand, I could put him in place where no one else in the room would do that and kind of cut the tension. (laughs) And, you know, it was was just, it was really, it was really incredible. But she, you know, she said, if you're there, you will do it. And they won't physically do what I need them to learn on how to care for somebody at the end. And it was just, it was like, wow. And, um, and, and so, you know, when I got back in town, everyone was talking about the process and I'm like, yep, that's what she wanted. She wanted to remove that fear. And, you know, for me, it's, it's one of the biggest gifts you can give not only that person, but yourself. I mean, uh, those are just such memorable moments. In, in my and you're describing, yeah, they are. And you're describing how important it is for us to realize that everyone experiences the grief process differently. We're all going mm-hmm. to go through it. Some may get stuck midway through it. Some may revisit stages over and over before they can get to the next one. And every family member be, may be on, at a different point in it. You know, you may have one person that, that's still angry about it, while another one is feeling happy because they're looking at memories of the past that makes them feel good. And you may have another one that's sad and tearful and it's all okay to be on different pages of the grief process. It's just being able to recognize that that's where they are and coming to them with acceptance rather than trying to drag them to the page that you're on. And that's what you're describing of that experience with your mom and her process of dying. You're, you know, everyone was at a different point and you were able to come together and, and ease the tension so that people could be where they were. Yep. Yep. Very, very in, important stuff. Um, you know, at what age do you think children should be relied upon in terms of, of you know, being part of the, the caring relationship and, and situations as a whole? Do you have a, as soon as, an age? Yeah. As soon as they, as soon as they give you a clue, that mm-hmm. they want to be part of it through a question that they have, through withdrawing because they're not part of it. You're seeing uh, actions that maybe they're having bad dreams. Maybe they're, they're uh, you know, having difficulty with things that used to not be difficult. Uh, they're being argumentative. Uh, they're being extra helpful. They, they give us cues that say, I, I need to be heard. And, mm-hmm. you know, nationwide we have 1.3 to 1.4 million children caregivers ages 8 to 18, that are currently in those shoes. And some are, are thrust there with, with nobody taking the time to have a conversation, and other ones are having the conversations as they go along. And as far as when they are capable, I think children are always capable. It, yeah, it's yeah. a matter of finding out where, they're, where we can use what they have to offer. Yeah, and I, I really think it, it. For some kids, it starts much younger. I've um, been involved also with the, like the child protection process, and I can't tell you how many kids I have heard at a young age, like three and four years old, are kind of the glue holding the family together because of dysfunction, and you know, and then the rest of the family is lost when that person, if they're pulled out of a situation, I mean, it's just kind of fascinating. So I'm, um, you know, and again, every, every person is different. And I don't think that there's necessarily a, a magic age, just kind of like with dementia, when you've met one person, you've met one, there's this ebb and this flow and, and, you know, personalities and skill sets and all that stuff come into, come into play. But I think our, I think the net has to be really broad on this one and extremely inclusive. When I was younger, my mom used to always bring us to funerals and wakes, and her friends were just, Dorothy, you shouldn't be doing that. And my mom's like, 
this is nothing to be ashamed of. This is this should not be taboo. You know, we should be celebrating life on the way out, just like we celebrate life on the way in. You know, this mm-hmm. is a this is a this is a natural cycle that no one can break. So why are we? High? I mean, she was she was really kind of ahead of her curve, I think, in a lot of, yeah. a lot of ways with her with her beliefs and. Um, as an adult, I can say I think that really helped me in terms of understanding and, you know, trying to accept that, that death is going to happen to all of us, you know, and we don't have control over it. Um, but there's a and lot. And I think that's where the, do. yes, and I, I think that's where the fear of it first, when it first surfaces is when someone we love gets critically ill. Mm-hmm. And that's the time that we can begin to have those conversations with children about death being part of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I had a, a four-year-old who had, um, his mother had obtained a copy of my book, When Your Mom Has Cancer. And, uh, and I met her uh, just randomly by circumstances that developed. I re- met her up in Nashville and her little boy came into the restaurant where we were, where we were meeting and had this tattered copy of when your mom has cancer in his hand. Mm-hmm. And he said, this is, this is my mommy's book. Mm. And he knew the story from his mind was this was his mother's story. You know, he knew his mom had cancer. He knew mm-hmm. that there were things in there that were about him and his story. And he carried this book around with him and, I, I couldn't have had a more humble compliment if I, you know, had searched for one. And for this this boy at such a tender age, like you said, to have an understanding to be part of the process was really extraordinary and a lesson of that there is no age, as you said. It's more are we looking for what they have to offer and helping them to use it. Yep. Exactly. How do you, you know, you, you use this, this phrase when you speak, we must equip carriers of hope for generations to come. What do you mean by that? And, and can you kind of elaborate on that and, and what the impact you believe is on society with that? Yeah, there's two parts to that. We are in, entering our third season coming up in March of having what we call here a senior prom and it's our our major fundraiser for Hope Matters, the nonprofit that I run. And that fundraiser is an opportunity for the community to come together on a night of celebration of who our senior citizens are, both in the lives of families and in the lives of community. And we have an all-out prom experience, like you went to high school, but take it up 10 notches. Uh-huh. And, part, and part of that experience is that we have junior ROTC students who come and volunteer and are everything from tableside servers to dance partners, depending on corsages and boutonnieres, to just sitting and lending an ear. And the first year we did it, um, I, I, I expected them to enjoy it, but I was really touched by how many volunteered again the second year and now coming into the third year because it touched them in a way of, I, I can make this, this impact on someone older than older than me, you know. In essence, they were being tableside caregivers for a night, mm-hmm. but they were more accompaniments as a friend. And it's important that uh, we give our seniors the opportunity to bridge that generational gap with the young people, because we are going to reach a major, if we're not already there, shortfall of caregivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the numbers being diagnosed with Alzheimer's or related dementias is rising. The the people are, as people are living longer, the numbers are rising. As we have wounded warriors coming back and sustaining t- traumatic brain injury, the numbers are going to rise. And we need to equip these these young people to be, as you say, um, comforted and also comfortable with being part of the voice and being part of the journey because they are tomorrow's caregivers. And if we don't start equipping them now so they can be comfortable and they can be part of it, then maybe they won't. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think about how many people say, I don't want to go to the nursing home because it depresses me. Mm -hmm. If we don't like what we see, then we need to become part of the solution 
and the memory cafes are doing that. They're allowing us to get out there in our communities and become part of this endeavor of bringing caregivers and loved ones together in a space that's safe and fun and sharing so that we can invite these young people in to be part of that space too. They can begin to experience these things now so they can say, you know, maybe I want to go into science because I saw this and I want to become part of the solution. I want to go do the research to figure out how we can fix this. Or Mm -hmm. maybe I want to invent that next thing that monitors them so that wandering isn't such a problem or such a worry. Or maybe I want to come up with a cure for sundowning. You know, there are so many things that if they're educated and they become part of it, they can feel fuel. It's almost like hope that they can be part of this future solution. Oh, definitely. And I I love when you talk about the younger generation, you know, kind of getting involved and maybe wanting to get in science. And I think of, of Max Wallach, who, you know, yes. grandma, <laughs> you know, had dementia. He he wrote a children's book as well. And, and now he's, mm-hmm. you know, working, you know, was at Harvard and, and you know, the, these different colleges, you know, trying to find an answer. And, it, you know, it's just incredible. And then have his nonprofit where he gets puzzles and delivers those to nursing homes and people with dementia. I you know, have for an activity. He sent them here. Yeah, he sent them oh. here for my memory cafes. Yeah, he's he's just amazing. But there are so many kids out there like that. I mean, I've had um, on the show a Girl Scout um, who got, I can't, I think they call it the Golden Award. I can't remember offhand. Sorry, guys. Call me and, and send me hate mail on that one and correct me. But there's top award and she put together um, kind of a a history book of um, pulling out details to have conversations with people and to be able to reminisce. Another um, young uh, gentleman, he, he raised like $10,000 to build a freshwater um, fish tank and he built it. He partnered with a, a master carpenter who lived in a senior community and then they built this thing together and then he worked with the, somebody who owned a freshwater fish company, you know, to pick and choose. And then he gave it to a senior community because his grandma had dementia and he merged his love for the freshwater fish. So, I mean, there's so many things that the kids can bring and, and give back, you know, if it's, if it's choirs, if it's visits, if it's, I mean, it's, it's endless. And I love the, the intergenerational work. Um, with things. Why don't we dive a little bit deeper into your memory cafes? Tell people what they're, what they're like, because they're all very different all around the world. They are very different. I, I started out by just wanting in 2013 to provide a place that was quiet and peaceful, yet had an energy to it of, of engaging participants to do something in the arts. Um, to come together once a month. We started it in 2013 in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, and then two years later started one in Destin, and then a couple years later one in um, Crestview, Florida, and in Santa Rosa Beach, Florida. And as we ran those since 2013, in the beginning it was a little bit easier getting the word out and having people come from care centers as well as private homes. And, And then we experienced kind of an odd shift that the the um, places of care were more doing things in house and weren't getting their residents out as much, which I thought was sad. I, you know, I, to me, there's a window of opportunity to get these people out in the community and transfer safely and experience the world around them besides the facility that they're in. But sometimes the facilities choose otherwise for liability sake and, and lack of employees, you know, to, to handle all of that. And so we end up losing them to communities sooner than we should. Uh, But as we experienced those shifts, we decided that the music was hitting bigger than any other piece of the arts. And Mm -hmm. so we recently transformed to having just three cafes to concentrate on two care homes where people in the North County cannot get out any longer and they don't have frequent visitors coming Families are, you know, wide and far apart, and they they just don't have the kind of visits 
that we would hope for them to have. And so we go in there uh, once a month in each of those and have musicians come and artists come to share things uh, table side or, or bedside with those residents. And then we also have um, one here now in Fort Walton Beach that started recently kind of in a grander vision I have which is with a conservatory of music called Grow Your Gift, uh, the Conservatory of Music. And that mm-hmm. partnership will allow us to actually experience music through professionals who play all different types of music and also uh, provide some education on, on growing your own voice in hopes that next December we could have the area's first dementia-friendly choir for Christmas. And oh, cool. uh, that's kind of all in the works. Uh, we we kind of grew the the concept out of the summertime because we went on hiatus from the the places where we were having them to take the people that were participating on field trips throughout the summer. And we basically went into uh, everything from the science center to the museums to music stores and and just had different experiences to give the general public and the businesses the sense that these are people who still can be engaged and should be engaged and mm-hmm. are happy to be part of their community if they're invited. Uh, and so it, it gave an, uh, the businesses and these people a chance to see that these people were not only, you know, just people in a wheelchair or a rollator using, using a rollator or coming in with a caregiver, but they actually were interacting and singing and being part of the process of, of these experiments at the science center and what have you. So, I think it's just important for people to experience people at different stages of this disease of dementia to realize that they have a big window of time where they're able to have new experiences and we should do as much as we can to provide them. Yeah. Next week I'm actually having, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Cindy Lazinski from Northern Colorado. She has a dementia friendly Mm -hmm. um, community there. That's just, super vibrant and they have partnered with the symphony there and they have a program called Uh, be sharp. And so they, I know about that. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. So she'll be on and they've just had great results. Um, you know, where they, they, um, measure how they're doing both the person with dementia and their care partner before and then after. And she says the results are just, uh, uh, you know, they're off the charts you know, in terms of how a person feels engaged and, and you know, that, that sense of comfort. And I love that you guys are going to kind of do, you know, one of the, um, the voice choirs. Is that going to be just for people with dementia or is that going to be for people with dementia and their care partners? Both with dementia and their care partners. Okay. And I, I kind of have a, a reason for that is that my mother was, uh, your last guest uh, was, a, was a poet that you had on. And that really mm-hmm. struck me because my mother was a poet. Um, and one of the things that I think was important to realize during her journey was she had an opportunity to share one of her poems. And she mm-hmm. was about the midpoint in the disease. And she was reaching that point that, social discomfort had kicked in, you know, Mm -hmm. being put on the spot was uncomfortable being uh, by herself was uncomfortable. She kind of wanted me right there next to her. And when she went to share her poem, the person that was handling the event separated us and it Mm -hmm. just threw her. And um, I've, I've never really gotten over that. I, it still brings tears to my eyes to think of it because she, she could have, really really soared in that moment if she'd been allowed the comfort of the, the person she trusted by her side. And yeah. instead she, she really muddled through it and, uh, you know, ended up quite embarrassed and it, it just always, it broke my heart. And, and so when we started the idea of the dementia friendly choir, I said, we need to make sure that this is open to loved ones and caregivers because I don't want anyone to go through what my mother did. Mm-hmm. If they're comfortable with their caregiver by their side, then by golly, that caregiver needs to be part of this experience. Yep. Yeah, um, for sure. My mom used to sing in the choir. And so when she went into the nursing home, she she actually wanted to go in because my dad um, had, to, had to live there because uh, he took a fall down two flights of steps, you know, when he had uh, cancer. And so in the beginning, she was in the choir and went all over to sing and 
you know, what people don't understand is that you don't have to necessarily be mobile. You don't have to know all the words, you know, to enjoy the music. It got down to, you know, with my mom, we, we would change how we would dance to music. We would change how she would sing, you know, and, and, you know, pretty soon we were just doing a pinky dance with fingers and she got great comfort and joy out of just that connection. And, you know, mm-hmm. here in Minnesota, the, the uh, singing voice choir, they have like a thousand people show up for their, you know, for their shows. I mean, this wow. has turned into a huge, huge thing. They've had to change venues. And that's um, wonderful. Yeah, really, really powerful powerful stuff so I haven't personally been involved in that but when you wouldn't want me to because I can't I can't hold a note for nothing (laughs) but um but again dementia has taught me too to it's okay to sing because they're not they don't really you know my mom didn't care if I was in tune or not it was about Mm -hmm. having fun it was about being joyful it was you know about teaching us how to be more playful and non-judgmental too so I mean there's there's so many gifts wrapped up in in all of this um, and it's such a small world. I, I'm just sitting here smiling about the fact that you brought up B Sharp because your your guest that's bringing that to you this week or next week, she, um, I'm sure, knows someone that I just got introduced with this week about that program because Katie uh, Fahrenbrock used to help her run that out there. And now she's here in my area, this little Fort Wayne Beach community I live in, and we just met and we were just talking about the B Sharp. <laughs> oh, too funny, too funny. It is. Yeah, C- Cindy is just, um, I, I, she's got one of, in my opinion, and she's a, she's a good friend, so take it with a grain of salt. But I mean, she's got really one of the most vibrant, exciting um, groups and what they're doing and how they're approaching the whole dementia friendly culture is just something else. I mean, I, I uh, spoke um, to her conference and I mean, they were packed to the gills and the excitement in the room, it was like, okay, come on, I got to settle you down, you know, <laughs> just a mm-hmm. little bit, but it, there was just so much excitement. They were having so much fun. Um, and, and yeah. just the, the, the sense of community and unity that she has been able to, to build there is really quite the experience. Um, That's and it sounds, and it sounds like you have that gift as well in terms of being able to, to reach people. Cause it really is about, I think, getting to them on an emotional level, you know, it's so mm-hmm. that they really truly feel comfortable in their skin and and who they are I, I, to me that's one of the biggest gifts of the memory cafes is people can come in hesitant and typically by the time they leave the first meeting if not the second you could push them in front of a, a tv anchor for an interview and they're like raring to go <laughs> where yeah they really really weren't even they didn't like talking about it they didn't you know they they felt embarrassed and uncomfortable and it there's just there's just this sense when you align with people who are like you, who are going on a similar journey, that is just so extremely powerful that I, it, it makes me wonder, like, why are we not doing this more? <laughs> you know? Right. I used to, I used the phrase when I first started the neighborhood memory cafes that we need to have these be as frequent around the neighborhoods as Starbucks. You know, why mm-hmm. Why do we not have more of them? I love what, what Dave is doing with, with the whole approach of putting each one on the map and putting it out there. Because yep. we, we do. We need to, to see them as sprinkled, as plentiful as, as Starbucks because there are much more people than we're aware of who are going through this. And to know that they would have these safe havens where they could go and really just enjoy life to the fullest, it would be tremendous to have that many. Yep. Yep, that's for sure. Well, I can't believe we've only got about 10 minutes left. Time has just uh, flown by. Surprise, surprise. Sure <laughs> um, what what haven't we talked about that we need to cover in this time? And I want to make sure that we give people um, your contact information, even though it's on the radio show, it's on the blog and stuff. I like to be able to, to mention it here, too, in case people are listening to this on the fly. But what else would you would you like to cover that? That, that I've missed in my questioning. 
I think two things uh, come to mind. I actually wrote a note on one of them is that you asked earlier about why the intergenerational approach is important. We have uh, a lot of families, especially myself being of military family, both uh, first active duty and then retired military with my husband, that we have a nuclear society. We have so many families who have, whether it's military work or other companies that require them to live and transfer to different places around the nation and internationally, that we have lost a sense of what it is to have grandma next door or grandpa down the road to go fishing with. And so to connect these intergenerational uh, events as we do with the memory cafes or with the senior prom that I mentioned, any events, even a reading program within nursing homes, whatever it is that can connect these generations together is critically important because we have lessons that go both ways that can be passed on and can be fruit for the spirit for both the individuals, the elder, as well as the young one. And so connecting them together is, in essence, we're building a legacy for our society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's Wonderful. one note that I had made. Um, and the other note you had made uh, before the show was, you know, just about hope and and about the need for it and the lessons inherent in it. So I'd like to perhaps talk about that in the last five minutes here about what does, you know, why is hope so important and, and what is it that we look for to see those glimmers? Mm-hmm. Well, and it is, and I I love, you know, the name of your company because hope matters. I mean, it's just like it does, and it's a a simple thing that I think is overlooked right up there with kindness, you know, but we have to have hope of a better day, you know, because when we don't, um, it it really spirals us down, and and, um, I think that that is critical, and I think it applies to, to all of life. Um, how did you go about um, grabbing your name? Because hope matters. Everything that I had done with writing the books, um, the first couple of books before I developed the name Hope Matters, it kept coming through to me through other people that what I was really giving them were nuggets of hope. And um, as I looked at what was available really as far as websites availability online, you know, you search for different names and find out that one's already taken. Well, that one's already taken. (laughs) And you kind of keep brainstorming. And and then I just hit on hope matters. It matters. And that just struck a chord with me. And and then through the search, I, I said, okay, you know, it's out there in a couple of forms, but not in the way that I'm going to use it. So I think we can go with this. And and uh, sure enough, that's what we decided upon. And I say we because my, my son was uh, involved in this process from the beginning, being my illustrator and layout of, of different things that I needed because he's just always been in the graphic design business and thought, you know, what better way to, to do this than to reach out to family. So he became yeah. part of the process. And, and then my husband still, of course, is always in the background, but a major, major supporter in everything that I do. And I, I don't know what I would do if, uh, you know, if they were not involved, because really we, we gather those hope nuggets from our family to our biggest encouragers to keep doing what we're doing. Exactly. Exactly. Well, this has just been um, such a nice conversation and we could chat all day long. <laughs> you know, I think we've got a lot, yes, of, yes. A lot of things in and common I, and there. I, yeah, and I, I think the other last part of the the hope too is um, just watching for your own little ones as they're growing up and and seeing their gifts and then bringing helping them bring those gifts to fruition. You know, both our my daughter Lauren and our son Derek are both very artistic, and I would look for ways to develop their passions as they as they grew up and giving them hope for a future. And uh, truly, we all need hope for the future, and that should continue to be encouraged throughout our lives. Exactly. Now, people can go to your website, um, which is because hope matters. Um, and is that .com or is that is that .co? Yeah, it's a little confusing. Uh, because hope matters .com. So because hope matters .com is my blog and my my spot for my speaking engagements and my writing 
and then hopematters.co or .company.co is the nonprofit Hope Matters. So I actually gotcha. have two sites. Okay, okay. I did I did not catch the difference in that. Can they get yeah. from one to the other? If they go to one, can they go get to the other? Yes, they can. That was a great question. I was about to add that. Yes, they can. Okay, wonderful. And then you're on Facebook, and they can just find you if they type in Because Hope Matters. You should pop up there. And, right, um, as well as Hope Matters. And to get your book, they can get that through the website as well. Just go to your products, I would imagine, section. Right, and Amazon, just type in my name or type in When Your Grandma Forgets or When Your Teacher Has Cancer, any one of them. Okay, well, wonderful. And then you also have a um, a phone number. Do you want to give that out, or do you prefer people contact you by by email and the website? Uh, by email and the website is fine because it's all on there, including the phone number. Mm-hmm. And okay. I would like to point out, uh, you just one last comment here on the book, When Your Grammar Forgets. That was a collaborative work with myself and Bob Dietz from Arizona, who uh, has a master's in theology. And together we did this book over nine months of having never met one another. But we had come together on another title that I'd written, the When Your Mom's Cancer Doesn't Go Away. And that led him to request for me to do this one with him. And then we started working a little bit with this with Dr. Terrio from, from Banner Alzheimer's Institute and ended up going out there to do a three-legged approach of the psychosocial and spiritual and medical aspects of experiencing Alzheimer's. So that work is really a, what I would call a true collaboration. Oh, wonderful. Do you have anything or, or that maybe you've done and I missed it on bullying at all? Because I think that that's just such a hot-button topic, too. I have not. Um, I have I have seen some things and been asked about that. I, I always I had an article I wrote a while back saying that my advocacy began in kindergarten, and I <laughs> it's interesting you asked that question because I just went to my dare I say 40th class reunion, and there were two people at that reunion who really were bullies in high school, and uh, it was good to see that life has even transformed the bully. So. Uh, you know, I, I would say on that topic that to just remember of what I said earlier, that we're all changing and evolving through life. And hopefully those people that um, come up against that, there's some grace there that even even the bully can change. Yeah. Yeah. I just I see so many kids pressured, you know, by that and adults. I mean, and people with dementia, yeah. um, they're they're actually bullied against to a lot online. Um, for those voices that are really strong. And so I, I just think it's something that's kind of permeating, you know, across society on, on multiple levels there. That, that Sounds like a workshop have, topic. Yeah, yeah, um, that could could really help people. Well, thank you, Marianne, so much for being being with us today and taking this time. It's truly been a pleasure to have you on the show. So wish you the best of luck in the future and keep up the great work. Thank you, Lori. And you too. I I loved following you all these years and I admire what you're doing. Please keep up your good work. Oh, I will. Thank you. And to our listeners, I just want to say thank you and think about being our next guest because everybody is welcome here. And I would love to hear what you're up to or what you think we should be up to, to shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort around the world. Keep in mind that um, every time you like, click, and share these episodes with people, you are making a difference. I know that just nanosecond that it takes is really important because there are so many people that just need to get this information. Many people in your own sphere you don't even know are dealing with it because they haven't kind of come out of the closet yet about it. Um, They're not sure what to say or where to go, but I can tell you, and I hear this all the time, The comfort that they find in seeing information is um, downright overwhelming to some. So, again, please like, click, and share, and keep passing not only Alzheimer's Speaks information out and about, but other information as well. Together, we are way stronger, and we will beat this battle. Thanks so much, everyone. Talk to you soon. Bye now. 
Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.